You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. 1981 was the year the ultimate sales letter was published. 1981. 1983, the ultimate marketing plan came after it. And over time, over half a million copies of both books have been sold and translated into multiple languages all over the world. For a three-year span, the ultimate marketing plan and ultimate sales letter could be found next to the counter, checkout counter at every Kinko's location in North America. They were the seminal books that not only made this man famous, but also helped spawn tens of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world to improve their marketing. Today, we have the man and the legend with us live to take us back to the building of the ultimate sales letter and the ultimate marketing plan. Please get up on your feet and let's welcome Darren Spindler and Mr. Dan Kennedy. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. So, Dan. Um, a uh, much better mid-year than uh, last year where it was you, me, uh, five, uh, video crew, and uh, some bad coffee. Uh, yeah, we're, the Holiday Inn hasn't got all the memos yet, but basically we're loose. We're open for business. We're loose. So, um, you know, my introduction to Dan through my business partner today, a gentleman named Bruce Davis. He and I are partners in our bowling business, but Bruce was introduced to Dan through a Dottie Walder seminar and created an information marketing business after that. And one of the things that Bruce would do in his information marketing business would have book recommendations from time to time. And uh, I came later to find out that he wouldn't often talk about Dan and his info product because he said sometimes you got to keep your best secrets secrets. But I was out on a project uh, at Kinko's, FedEx Kinko's actually. I, I believe it was FedEx Kinko's. Maybe it was just straight up Kinko's. Maybe the transformation hadn't happened yet. But I was uh, waiting. My job was late. Uh, and the book spindle was there. And I saw the book with the bullseye on it. And it said, Dan Kennedy. And I said, huh, I wonder if this is the guy that Bruce had talked about. And I open it up, and I'm like, well, it sure as hell has to be, because it just lines up for what I've been learning for the last 10 years from uh, my mentor. So I bought that book at FedEx Kinko's, and I could literally walk into that store today. It's next to a Starbucks now, and literally go to the two carpet tiles and recall where I bought that book from. And for me, that was the book that actually changed everything. And uh, I bought the book that day. Uh, the next day, I went back and I got the Ultimate Marketing Plan book. And uh, I guess the rest is history. So with that, Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about why in the world, um, even if we never want to sell a sales letter, why should we take the time to assemble a sales letter, uh, even if I don't intend to deploy one? So first of all, why that would be the case is beyond me because there's very few businesses, types of businesses that should not have in their toolbox at least a main sales letter that tells their story, but really they should have 
you know, a number of them for different purposes. Uh, but even if you were never going to uh, mail one or tack one up on the web, um, what it does is it imposes discipline on you um, that many business owners, they never actually sit down, think through, and craft their story, right? They don't really get to clarity of what are we trying to communicate to our customers or our patients or our clients. The, therefore, everything they do is disjointed. So the in-store atmosphere, the way the phone is answered, whatever ads they run, the website, it's not, it's not uh, cohesive and congruent. And they haven't thought through, why should people do business with us? What's our rationale for existence? When you sit down, however it is you're going to do it, the method in this book or other, and um, lock yourself in a room, and you can't come out until you've done your main sales letter, it forces you now to do all this thinking. Um, and uh, the earliest method for, so if you can build a sales letter, you now have essentially, you have a webinar. Essentially, you have a face-to-face -face sales presentation, and that may be where the sales letter came from, depending on your business. And now you have structure to impose. Uh, with bigger companies, um, I often find um, that I found it with Weight Watchers. I found it with Miracle Ear. Um, like there's no script. Uh, you sit in the phone, phone room um, and you listen in on people taking the inbound calls. You listen in on the face-to-face -face presentation. And if you didn't know they were all for the same company, for the same product or service, um, you you would think they weren't. So this, if you have to sit down with a stack of three-by-five cards and you have to start writing down one item per card on what's our story, why should we exist? I mean, so we got a donut shop, and there's a Dunkin' Donuts right down the street. What, what's the rationale for our existence, yep. right? And you start to do that and then shuffle the cards into an order that makes some sense, um, you, you wind up doing a lot of thinking about your business that you may never have done up until that point. And if you do it, uh, it gives you two advantages. It gives you the basis for a presentation. Here's the story we are gonna tell every time we tell a story, no matter how we tell the story. And it forces you to face gaps 
um, even face up to, uh-oh, we actually don't have a reason to exist. Huh. <laughs> you know? maybe it's a little problem. Maybe we better fix that, you know? Because a lot of people get in business because they want to be in that business. Their whole rationale for being, I, I had a member of a, what used to be Gold VIP, Mastermind yeah. Group, eons ago, and he sold a really good business, and they moved to a little seaside community, and he and his wife opened a gift shop of dolphin stuff, dolphin jewelry, dolphin shirts, dolphin hats, I think everything but dolphin in a can you eat, <laughs> um, um, uh, which might have been a better idea. I um, Probably more problematic today. Uh, yeah, more problematic today. Oh, yeah, I mean, we'll, you'll get email now from <laughs> um, uh, I'll be a dolphin-ist yeah. is what I'll be. Um, but I asked him, I said, how many other gift shops are there, right? Well, there's a zillion. It's, yeah. you know, it's a row of yeah. gift shops, you know. I said, uh, what's the market? Like, do cruise ships come here? Is it all locals? Is it, well, he, uh, he's done Whoever it. Whoever walks by. He's done it, the third question, right? We're getting in this business, in this place, because we want to be in this place, and we want to be in this business. Well, that's kind of a crappy story, right? <laughs> you should give me money because I want it. Um, um, so the sales letter forces you to think through what's the most important thing we have to say, what's the second most important thing, what's the third most important thing, how should we say it, et cetera, et cetera. So, Dan, you know, one of the things that holds a lot of people back from creating their sales letter is they think that they're not great at writing. But you've said many times that you don't really have to be great at, quote, writing. You've got to be good at adapting, you know, taking sales letter and themes and ideas and stitching them together. Do you want to talk a little bit about the preparation that goes in and how can somebody who thinks they're not a great writer become a writer? Yeah, so this is not, this is not content writing, which in some respects is easier but in some respects scares people. So they won't do newsletters and they won't do books. And uh, this, this is not content writing. This is not English lit. <laughs> this is not, you know, your eighth grade high school English teacher is not gonna applaud any of this if you do it right. This is a sales presentation a sales conversation in media, in this case, in a letter form. If you go to the original Joe Carbo book, A Lazy Man's Way to Riches, um, Joe had a sample, has a, there's a sample in the book of the letter Joe wrote to his brother-in-law to sell his used car. That's what we're doing, right? So we're not doing Shakespeare. And you don't have to be able to write. You just have to be able to write down what it is that you or someone 
says that works in your business. So if you're a chiropractor and you can manage to do a case presentation and convert at least a fourth of the people you do a case presentation for and you write down your case presentation, you have a big hunk of what would be your sales letter, uh, your initial conversation with the patient. is So this is about moving from manual labor to media. This is not about writing in the sense of the great American novel or even a great article. This is selling uh, by words in print. Now, if you start where you're failing at that and there's neither you or anybody in your business is any good at communicating your business by any means, <laughs> so you're the chiropractor and you close one out of 50 uh, case presentations, <laughs> You're probably going to be out of business. Probably don't want to transcribe well, that and uh, make that the yeah, sales letter. Yeah, you're probably. And by the way, practice does not improve that. You know, the practice makes perfect thing is <laughs> is BS. I mean, if I go out every day and practice the golf swing I've got, all we're going to have is a lot of wounded people, <laughs> and and I'm not going to be any better at golf six months from now than I am now because you got to fix the swing, right? So if you have nothing that works, you will not make a sales letter work, but that should force you to go figure out how to have something that works, right? But this is about writing down what you communicate, however you communicate it, that is now persuasive to people, right? And in many cases, it's not trying to be a... Repl now, sometimes the sales letter is to make a sale. And somebody is supposed to pick up the phone and call, fill out a coupon, go to a website and buy something. But often, sales letters are about getting a step short of that. They're, it's selling the appointment, right? It's, uh, it's pre-selling uh, the stuff you have to say all the time before you really get to selling, it's doing some of that. So your repetitive manual labor is reduced and it's said perfectly every time, regardless of what mood you are in that day. It's not necessarily replacing the entire sales process. So Dan, when you go to prepare to, to write the sales letter, you know, you've mentioned it already today, three by five index cards, what type of information are we gathering? Facts, testimonials, what are the things we need to gather up before we stitch together our sales letters? So almost every pro copywriter will tell you they have some version of the table for the project where all the raw material is gathered and placed and they can walk around the table and start to pull things and put them together. Um, and so Carlton will 
will tell you that. Yep. Um, uh, Russell, uh, uh, um, the, the big guy with Partiv, the little guy. Um, uh, Russell will tell you that. Um, people that write copy not for clients but for themselves a lot will tell Sheffern will tell you that. Some version of the table. Uh, you set out to get all the information you can get, but not to the point that you're paralyzed forever because you can never get all the information. Um, uh, there's a good book, new book out. Um, uh, it's Annie Duke's second book. Annie Duke's a world-class poker player. If you saw the year of Celebrity Apprentice with Joan Rivers, Annie Duke's the one who came in second. Uh, her book is Thinking in Bets, and the subtitle is How to Make Decisions When You Don't Have All the Information. Right? So we can never get all the information, but we want all the information yeah. we can get. If you are writing for a client or you're writing for you as the client, the first rule is don't trust the information you get from the client. <laughs> right? You want it and you consider it, but you have to be really good at separating real information from belief system. Because people have secular religions about their business that develops over time that, um, um, uh, that they think is information. And it hasn't been tested in ages and it may no longer be true. Uh, so you're looking for facts data, you know, that sort of thing. You want to know everything you can about their current customers, patients or clients, broken out. What is the top 10% in value? What are they? What's the, what's the next block of them, 20%? What are they? What's the bottom you wish you didn't have? What are they? Yep. Right? Um, so you want information about their customers. You want, of course, all the product or service information if you are selling a particular product or service. What does it do? How does it do it? Can we demonstrate it? Um, how is it different than what people expect? How is it different than what competitors do, which next gets you to, you want information about your competitors, right? Um, you know Chet Rowland. Yep. So um, one of the things Chet did every couple of years uh, when he was in the pest control business yep. is he rented a house for a week and he called every competitive pest control company and had him send a guy out and he pretended to be a customer, <laughs> and he role-played with all the competitors and saw exactly what they were doing. And that's incredibly smart, right? Uh, most people won't take the time or effort, yeah. you know, to do that. So you want your direct competitor information. You want, you want your math information. 
So you need to figure things out like maximum allowable costs. Um, what's the most you'll pay for a lead if you're gonna write a letter to generate a lead? What's the most you'll pay for the sale if you're gonna write a letter to generate the sale? Um, so um, um, sometimes those are, those are unrealistic numbers. And um, I will say to a client, forget it, right? You're stuck uh, doing Facebook because the numbers you just gave me won't support print. They won't support broadcast. They won't support exhibiting. They won't support all the stuff you should Anything. be doing, <laughs> but they won't support it. So you got to go change your math, right? Um, uh, one of the most successful companies in the subscription information business, right? I mean, they're happily uh, mailing millions of sales letters that make, uh, give or take, a 90, a 49 to uh, $99 sale at a maximum allowable cost of 300. Um, and then the game begins, yep. right? So you gotta know your math. And if the math is bad, you need to fix your math before you spend money on the media. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a gravity to all of direct marketing, to all of advertising, in particular to the sales letter it will only do so much 90% of the time. Every once in a while, if you do a lot of them, you will hit one that goes out of the park and lands in another town. It did so well. Mm -hmm. But mostly, you're going to get base hits. House list of active customers that like you, and you mail a really great sales letter, for a sale or a promotion or a new product or a new service, you can hope for 2%. You might get five, you might get one, but you ain't gonna get 10. <laughs> and so if the math you've, if you've worked out says, this is a success if I get 10, <laughs> Don't you're, you're nuts, right? Um, if you, re, if you uh, kind of the textbook of the direct marketing business, it's very boring, um, is Direct Marketing by Bob Stone. And there's an entire section of math, right? And it's, the, he, I call it money math, that's not what they call it, but it's the math you have to understand to effectively do direct marketing, and then narrowly to do sales letters. Yeah, so Dan, um, certainly once we we, we take some of the beginning stages here in this information. We then start to get into really the, the most important pieces of understanding how to get inside the head of your customer, client, patient. And you created really a list of 10 really smart questions to diagnose a market and uh, profiling questions. Do you want to chat a little bit about, you know, the questions like, for instance, what keeps them up at night? Why is that important? Well, because... Um, when you get sophisticated at all, 
about selling, then you get sophisticated about a thing like a sales letter. You begin to understand that purchases are more about the buyer than they are about the thing. And so this is an exercise in behavioral psych. That's what this is. And so things like product features and benefits are important, but they are only important if they are tied to some driving internal motivation, fear, greed, anger, etc. Um, all sales letters that raise funds in politics. Almost all of them are either rage letters or they are fear letters. These sons of bitches are going to try and do this and we need your money to stop them. Right? And, well, that, that now moved to commercial, to product or services, the same thing applies. Okay? People, only at a commodity level do people buy things because of the thing. Okay, oh, my garden hose broke, water spraying everywhere, I need a garden hose. It's not a sophisticated purchase. Okay? But when you get above that, even into consumer product like beverages, or soup, okay? there's a emotional, psychological component to which one they buy. So you have to know as much as you can about the mindset, the psychology, the motivations of the audience that you are going to uh, write your letter to. So again, I'll use Carbo's example. So if you're writing a letter to your brother-in-law to sell your used car, you have a huge advantage over, say, a car dealer because you know your brother-in-law, <laughs> okay? So if his ego gratification comes from being the cheapest guy on the planet and finding bargains, you then know that's how you've got to position this, right? If his ego gratification comes from being helpful to the family, then you're going to position this, you're going to write this sales letter entirely differently. It's going to be about buying the car almost as a favor, right? So you have a huge advantage. Well, that's the advantage you want with the group of prospects you are going to write to. So things like what keeps them up at night um, uh, gets Harry out of bed at 3 o'clock and downstairs in the kitchen uh, with no light on, a piece of pie, and then a half an hour later, Marge realizes he's down there. What's that? conversation, ideally you can, you can write the conversation as if you were going to write a Broadway play. 
because that's going to migrate into your sales letter, and it's more important than what you're selling. Right? See, hardly anybody, when you do face-to-face -face selling, so if you've ever sold, and all, the great copywriters almost all have, there's exceptions, but not many. If you've ever sold nose-to-nose, toes-to-toes, at the kitchen table, on the living room floor, um, encyclopedia, uh, fire alarms, uh, burial insurance, the kind of stuff, you know. Um, nobody bought encyclopedia because they wanted encyclopedia. <laughs> that, that's not what happened, right? They bought it because of what was going on in that conversation. Now, you had to kind of do a cold read face-to-face to, for me to get you to tell me which of the drivers was yours, like fear your kid was a dummy and wasn't going to be able to get into college. I got a solution. <laughs> he starts at A, he goes to Z, <laughs> boom, right? But if that's not your motivation, if your motivation is your kid's going to be the smartest kid in the school and get straight A's and get all awards and you're going to have the bumper sticker on your car that says, I got a straight A student, I got to sell that differently. It, the, it's not the books, yeah. right? And so when you write a sales letter now, I can't get you to tell me, so I've got to cover them all. Okay, unless I have a self-selection process yeah. in front of it, which is a marketing plan issue. But that's what you're doing with a sales letter, is you're selling to what keeps them up at night, what, what drives them. Um, uh, so like uh, High Point University, I do some work for High Point. Uh, because of this, I didn't have time, but I'm sure they jumped on it in a slightly more elegant way than I would. But two days ago, it made the news, and yesterday, this psychiatrist lecturer at Yale, I'm sure some of you saw it, um, uh, people actually get credit for going to her lecture. And her lecture was titled, The Psychotic White Mind, and Part of her lecture was how all white people are crazy. There are no good ones. And I fantasize all the time about shooting as many of them as I can. Now, if I'm high point, this is my email of the day. Okay? Because you could send your kid off to Yale. Yale. And this is what they're going to get. Yep. Here... They're not going to get that. Yep. Now, they need, they'll say it more elegantly than I just said it. Yep. But um, I would rather they didn't. But there's <laughs> political constituencies that, you know, that, that get in the way. But now that's like a blast out. Yep. Okay. But they have sifted and sorted prospects as they come into the funnel and we know to a certain extent which parents are values-driven parents. That's what 
attracted them in the first place. We know it because of the questionnaire they filled out, etc. Some are not. They're uh, outcome-driven. When the kid pops out at the end of the four years, is he going to be able to function, or is he going to be back in my basement? <laughs> now, they say that more elegantly than I just <laughs> said it. But there is a whole chain of sales letters about that, right? Yep. So the Yale thing ideally is written about differently to the values-driven list than to the outcome-driven list, right? Same incident. So now think about the reverse of it, the product. Same product, but it is written about differently or with the three-by-five card shuffled in a different order to different people. And this gets to an advanced strategy, so two different sales letters, right? One well, for this person. Or three or four or five, five yeah. or ten. Okay? I'm sure Simpson told where, said. Where 80% of it's the same, but there's a version in a yeah. section. Yeah. So there's a principle of mail order that the quickest way to go broke is mail the whole list. Okay? So this even applies to your own list of customers, patients, or clients. There's four or five different motivators in different minds that bring them to you and keep them with you. And they don't all have the same reason for uh, being attracted to you uh, and for continuing to buy from you. So ideally, you are finding this out so that you can split and customize messages, right? Again, if you could write every sales letter to your brother-in-law, you know so much about your brother-in-law your sales letter would be really effective, by the way, even if you think you can't write. Okay. Um, uh, but most people don't gather that kind of information. So how much you know about what's going on in the mind of the, of the buyer or the prospective buyer then that is as important to write about as it. So now when you gather stuff to use, you mentioned testimonials. So if I know what keeps them up at night and I know um, what they want that they are afraid to talk about and I know what irritates them about the business they're in if we're doing B2B, right? So like chiropractors are irritated by being thought of as third-class citizens in healthcare. Right? So if you know that, right? So now when you go search for your testimonials, you want testimonials that match up with these drivers. You don't just want random testimonials. It's not enough that people say nice things about you. You want them to say the things that match up with the reasons people buy from you. Yeah. 
that's what you want in a sales letter. So, Dan, I know that you also talk oftentimes about um, there's different biases for the way people make decisions, and you've got to take that into consideration and also some of their own languaging and how, how you integrate those two components into the sales letter. So, first of all, most people are really bad at making decisions. So the bad news about that is they've made a lot of bad ones and they haunt them. The good news is they're really bad at making decisions. <laughs> um, um, so it's important to understand that most people get to a decision for all the wrong reasons, right? they get to trust for all the wrong reasons. And you can't let yourself get trapped in selling based entirely on the right reasons because you'll sell a lot less. So this is all psychological. Now, we, it, so how does Harry and Marge make a decision? So if, if Harry's really analytical um, and kind of prides himself on uh, making really informed decisions, then he needs to see bars and graphs and pie charts <laughs> and statistics, right? If Harry makes decisions impulsively, you lose him as soon as you break out the pie charts and the graphs and the statistics. So if your customers are engineers and academics, they make decisions differently than if they are salespeople, okay, for example. Um, so we have in the group a very successful financial advisor who target markets, his name's Jim Lang, and Jim target markets college professors. Now, most financial advisors would not want them <laughs> because of the way they make decisions. However, he, his mother's a college professor, his brother's a college professor, and he's got a crap load of clients who are college professors. And he is professorial by nature. You have to stop him from being that with other audiences. So he has such a profound affinity match to that audience that he's six steps ahead with trust just when he starts. And he understands how they think. Right? He, he knows what the kitchen table conversations are. And he knows what their language is, and he knows how they like to make decisions. So he's enormously successful with them when someone in his same business would be unsuccessful. So not only can Jim do a good group presentation, and he can do a good, which, by the way, most of us would fall asleep. <laughs> okay? it, it, it ain't fun. And Jim could do a good one-on-one. -on -one. Jim could do good sales letters. 
that, for example, fill the free seminars he does only for college professors, right? And there's no guessing there. Gee, I wonder what motivates these people. I know exactly what motivates these people. I'm surrounded by these damn people, yep. right? So that's what you're looking for to help you is that kind of an edge. So on the same lines, I mean, why do you want to go search out who else is selling to them, who else has tried to sell to them? Because this helps make your job infinitely easier. Sure. Comparables um, rather than competitors. You pay attention to direct competitors, of course, but a lot of people fail to look at comparables. And again, because the product or the service is actually a lot less important than the way the sale is being made, what's being said, and what's being written, then if I'm selling something that costs $8,000 right, to 60 years of age and up, I'm selling hearing aids. Anything that has been sold and is sold to that same audience that costs $8,000, it's useful to see their entire Pitch. sales process, their entire presentation, and if they have a great sales letter, their sales letter. So... It, 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 certainly, like for that, the health category, right? So the guys that sell uh, new bathtubs, um, it's useful to see, right? So that's a price comparable. If there's a process comparable, oh, this company gets my audience to come to a room and sit there and listen to something. And that's how I want to sell what I sell. It doesn't matter what the hell they were selling. It matters process. If they get them to come to a showroom and test a product, and I want them to come to a showroom, and I sell window replacements, I want to pay attention to how a car dealer gets people to come to a showroom and test drive a car. No, I'm not in the car business, but we share a process, right? So any comparable is useful to study. And often you'll discover a thing. It's not like you're going to lift the whole process. But you'll discover a thing that you can move over and now integrate into how you sell. So, Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about damaging omissions and why uh, you should address, like, the elephant in the room, because oftentimes, you know, it's you know, easy to write all the good things about your product and why they should buy it, but, frankly, there's reasons to put in why they shouldn't buy it or a flaw that you might have. Yeah, so, there, so there's two things about that. Uh, so one is there are reasons somebody shouldn't buy whatever it is you're selling. If there aren't, 
you're probably at the commodity level of the money pyramid, and I pity you. So there are reasons that, um, so I was talking with somebody yesterday about the makeup of our lifers, long-term, high-value members, customers. And I said, contrary to what you would think, as an outside observer, we do have liberals who have been, <laughs> what well, we do, who have been with us for a long period of time. Um, they're, some of them like to be irritated. <laughs> well, that's why liberals listen to Limbaugh, right? Um, some hold their nose about certain things in order to get the other value that they want. So we've got them. We don't have many of them, but we got them. Okay? Uh, if you're target marketing for us, you wouldn't target them because basically we're inappropriate for them because my politics distracts them <laughs> from the other value, yeah. right? So you have, the, you have a, a flaw in your ointment somehow. Every product does. And there are customers for whom you, your business, and your product are inappropriate. You're, maybe your kid shouldn't go to High Point University. There's a bunch of kids who shouldn't. Yeah. There's a bunch of parents who shouldn't let their kids go there because they'll be unhappy with what is happening. Okay. Conversely, maybe your kid shouldn't go to Yale even if they could get in because look at what the hell is going on at Yale. So, so there, now you have two choices about how you handle that. You can ignore it, try to sell to everybody that's got a wallet and a pulse, and hope they don't notice. <laughs> right? Now, that's the, the coward approach that 8 out of 10 advertisers, marketers, and sellers use, right? And it's got all kind of problems, right? It often makes the end sales process harder, so now you need a super killer salesperson to close the sale. It often creates bad customers after the fact because they come out of the ether and they don't like this feature of the product, right? I mean, like if you sell a piece of home exercise equipment that does not easily fold up and slide under the bed, you need to be targeting a certain kind of customer. And number two, you probably ought to disclose it, okay? Because otherwise there's going to be a whole lot of people unhappy and shipping the thing back, okay? Because they're only going to use it like three times and then they're going to put it under the bed. And the handle's got to point up so they can hang shit on it, okay? Or they're going to be unhappy. So one approach is to ignore it.
The other approach is disclosure and also using it. Right. So the benefit of disclosure is the earlier you disclose, the easier, less stressful, less difficult the rest of your sales process is. Well, it's the Ken Fisher approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't if have, you don't have half a million. Stay away. Stay away. Um, the other benefit is uh, damaging admission, disclosure, uh, builds trust. So it can get you to trust quicker when you do it. Um, if you keep it till late, so like, I always disclose very early for my practice that it's a giant, from your, from most people's perspective, it's a giant pain in the rear to communicate with me, okay, and you can't, uh, you, you can't send me email, you can't text me. Uh, I, you can't, I won't join any social media. I don't answer the phone. You got to have a phone. Outside of that, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you might as well know it now, right? And I'm not a cheap date. So you might as well know that now. That's the Fisher 500,000. Yeah. It's not a number because what I do is not that simple, but yeah. it's not a cheap date, right? Now, Actually, that gets you to trust quicker. Now, if you save it till the end, when here's the contract, and let me show you what's in the contract. Oh, by the way, here's how you can't communicate with me. Um, I'm now, not going to pick the phone up. No, I got. You can't, now, can't do this. Sounds you can't do right. That. Yeah. So, if you do it right, it builds trust. Then, secondly, you may be able to use it. So. Here's the reason this product, here's the flaw, right? right? And only certain people can handle this flaw to get the result they want. So like when I was working with Weight Watchers, I drug them back to two things that are true about Weight Watchers. Well, there's three things. One, it's actually the only diet that works. It, it's the only diet that produces people who lose weight and actually keep it off. Now, it's a small percentage, but it's a bigger percentage. Well, it is, but it's a bigger percentage than any other diet. Okay? And that's why they have a very high return rate. In a given year, 30% of their business is people who've been on Weight Watchers three or more times. And then they went and they did something else and they did something else and they got fat and then they finally said, I'll come back to the thing that works. <laughs> and they're back. So there's two things about Weight Watchers, reasons that it works. Number one, you got to count. Sorry, you got to count. You got to count something. Calories, carbs, points, but you got to count. Okay? Secondly, you got to weigh yourself preferably at a meeting in front of other people. And you got to know you're coming next Wednesday and everybody's going to stand around to see whether or not you lost any weight. 
Those are the two things that make it work. Now, you, you see them shy away from saying it all the way to not saying it at all until the very end, right? And I put it in the sales letter right up front and said a lot of people will not be willing to do these things to get a successful result. Some people just don't have the discipline. They, start, they started to clean their garage in 1983, and they haven't got it done yet. Okay? This is probably not for you. Okay? Uh, some people think they're too busy, and they just have to open a box and eat what was shipped to them. Uh, this is probably not for you. That approach, right? Now, first of all, it drives some people away who are inappropriate customers, which is a good thing. Secondly, it bristles some people and sells them. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, don't tell me I don't have discipline. I'll stick to this. I get it. So it closes some sales. It creates price elasticity because you're selling to people who are willing to do difficult or unpleasant things in order to get the result they want to get from the product. Therefore, they'll pay more for the product. Okay? So I had it right in my front-end sales letter. And that's where I would typically put it in my main sales letter. If I'm doing a lead generation sales letter, I would probably have it all the way up in the lead generation process. Yep. Okay? Uh, we use some version of appropriateness quizzes a lot, and we use them early. And they are usually rigged uh, to contain all these things, the disclosures, the, the damaging admissions, the challenge to your ego, um, and the reality of what it's going to be like to be involved with this business. To, you know, I remember uh, the script when they sold you uh, the Playboy Club membership, which was uh, silver, gold, um, platinum. Right. And, Creative. Hmm? Creative. Well, you know. <laughs> um, and the script included, okay, you're getting a membership which gives you all these privileges. However, as you can see, we have a small, intimate club. So you may not be able to get a reservation the day you want to come to lunch or the week you want to come to dinner. You need to make reservations early. Right? At the same time, you're paying to become a, a member. member. But you went, I mean, Disney's the same deal with the timeshare. Yep. They tell you, you know, it's six months out. 
you damn well better be making your reservation. You're not allowed to make it before then. So at midnight 01, six months out, the race is on. And there's a lot more owners who want to be at Animal Kingdom with the room facing the giraffe uh, than there are rooms facing the giraffes. Yep. And give us $100,000 for your timeshare. They're not afraid to do it. And I think courageous sales letters are better than coward sales letters. Dan, we, um, you know, inside the community, we've got ugly sales letters that are developed, and there's some really beautiful sales letters that are developed. Where does the ugly sales letter fit in? Where does uh, a much more beautiful sales letter, a designed sales letter fit in the mix? Because both can work. Uh, but where are they appropriate? So message matters more than anything. And you should never forget that. So when the graphics folks get ahead of you, get a hold of you and want to put six letters on a page and, and, a, and a picture, uh, that ain't going to cut it. So the message matters more than anything. Then you can answer your question. There is, you have to have some sensitivity to the audience, and especially with the front end, what they will assign credibility to and what they won't. Okay? But you can't overdo that either. So the, um, the corporate CEO, so a version of this is everybody in a chiropractor office should have, the staff should have on white jackets like doctors and nurses uh, with their name on them and the chiros should all have stethoscopes even though they don't use them. The chiro office that has people in polo shirts um, with their names on them, see that's, you see that at Subway. So you've turned your staff into sandwich artists. Um, <laughs> it's not reassuring. The Cairo office that just lets anybody dress any damn way they please, that's even worse. Okay? There's an expectation people have when they come into a doctor's office. Now, if you want to violate it for differentiation, A, you got to go all in, and you got to sell it. So, like, we have a member, I have a private client, uh, Dr. Angles. And their dental office is a um, kind of a Hawaiian island. <laughs> um, and it's a big selling point. The rooms, each room has a name. This is the Believe Room, and this is the, and it's all decorated with fish and stuff and Wyland paintings. And, um, and you are coming to your, you know, Island retreat. <laughs> All right. Now, you got to sell that. 
uh, and they do very effectively. Um, so there's no rule. Okay? And so I've been very effective, even at the corporate level, uh, delivering ugly. Um, they, it stands out. They, nobody, they, so all they get is brochures, right? So it stands out. Now you immediately have to sell it. Why have I sent you, you know, Halbert's old line? Um, as you can see, I've attached a dollar bill to the top of this letter. Why have I done such a thing? Three reasons. Number one, number two, number three. Okay. So some version of that very early, or you don't have any believability, right? Um, uh, if you are selling to the same people all the time as we do, then you want to mix this up. You don't want to just be one, arrive the same way with the same look again and again and again and again, because now you're committing the ultimate marketing sin. You're being boring, right? Um, you, so if you're selling to a different audience physically, okay, the nine years I sold on the stage to huge audiences at the success tour, I basically wore the same, I got to the point I had the suit that worked and the tie that worked, and that's the suit I'm wearing. I had to have two of them because we did a Tuesday and a Thursday, and <laughs> you didn't have time to get it cleaned. But that, that's it, right? But if you're going to do the same audience 20 times a year, you can't do that. It's like, ugh, right? So you got to mix it up. So the same thing is true with, with print material. If you're going to people a lot, and you may even need to mix it up in the box that goes to them, so there's pretty, there's a real pretty brochure, and then there's an ugly 16-page sales letter that rides with it. You may need to mix it up in a sequence where ugly, pretty, ugly, ugly, pretty, right? You may need to do that. Now, there's a piece of good news about it. When you get a sales letter that works, often all you got to do is change its suit and mail it to the same people again. Okay? Because uh, different people pay attention on different days. That's why you never get, you look at your list and you look at your offer and you look at your great sales letter and you say, everybody's going to respond to this one. <laughs> no, because different people pay attention on different days to different things different. for different reasons, right? So Ron Ipack, who you know, some of you would know Ron, for a year in Titanium, uh, what is now Secret Society, um, Ron had a basic sales letter to generate leads 
from auto repair shop owners. A booklet, self-bailer, right? ugly. And all we did, he mailed it every month, same list, changed the color of the outside page, the outside <laughs> cover. That's it. Didn't change anything else. Got the same response the seventh month that he got the first month. Mm -hmm. And anecdotally, some people would say, this is great. Where have you been all my life? Right? I've never seen anything like this before. And you think, well, but I sent it to you like six times already. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Right? Uh, and someone else would say, I got that thing every month. And finally, you, got you know, you got me. So when you get a sales letter that works, you can move it around. You can, so you could take an ugly one and you could turn it into something pretty. You could take something pretty and turn it into an ugly one. And to the same audience, because when you get a list that works, which I'm sure Craig told you, if you get a list that works, your own, rented, borrowed, compiled, whatever, you want to use the list as much as you can. And one way you do that is changing the way you show up to it, but you don't want to change the message that works when you show up. That's great. So why don't we talk a little bit, once we finally get our message that works, um, and we get a sales letter or uh, two. Can I tell one story? For sure. So this is instructive. And so for the first, I don't remember how many years now, but I don't know, four maybe. Carla might know. For the first X number of years that I was on the, Peter Lowe tour, the success tour. Like everybody else, Tommy Hopkins, Zig, Brian, all of us, I suited up, I went, I sold as much stuff as I could, got the customers, brought them home, and the game began. I didn't do anything with the non-buyers. Now, this is beyond stupid, by the way which is why this is instructive. So for whatever reason, one day in one year, I don't remember why now, but I said, hey, Peter, let me have the list of all the ticket buyers. Now that doesn't get you all the non-buyers in the room because they come in clumps, but still, a crowd of 15,000, it would get me 5,000 names. I said, I'll call out the ones who bought my stuff, and I'm going to mail them a sales letter and give them a second chance to buy the stuff, and I'll give you the same split that we split when I sell. Because I want the customer. Yep. I don't, you know. So he says, well, that ain't going to work. I said, <laughs> yeah, I don't care. Give me the list. Right? So then we took my speech, transcribed it, changed the front, so I took out the 
hey, don't leave. Yep. Um, uh, because if you leave now, you're just going to sit in your car, bumper to bumper. You're not going to go anywhere. So you might as well stay and hear me take that out and stick in. Hey, you were there, and you didn't get my stuff, <laughs> right? And there's a couple reasons that might have happened. One, you might have left early because uh, some idiot with you insisted you go, <laughs> right? <laughs> Two, uh, you already bought a ton of stuff. And you swore to your spouse you weren't going to buy anything. So you just want it out of there, whatever the reasons yep. were. And I'm going to give you a second chance, same offer, uh, and here's why you should do it. Boom. Then the transcript. Same speech. Change nothing. Right? And the end is the same close, and it's the same offer. It's even the same order form. I mean, it's not like we stayed up all night. Yep. You know what I'm saying? This thing never failed to at least break even. Sometimes it made money. But it never failed to at least cover the cost of the mailing after the split to the house for the use of the list. We're even, and we got 200 more customers. Yeah. 300 more customers, right? Now, having known this, which I've been teaching appointment no sale, three-step letter follow-up since 1979, and that's all this is, is appointment. Now, it was an appointment with 15,000 people, but it was an appointment, no sale, right? Why I wasn't doing it from day one, kick my ass, right? <laughs> Um, uh, but it, it tells you if you, so I got a sales presentation that works. I can take that sales presentation, put that baby in print, and we can mail it. We sold the magnetic marketing system to the Nightingale Kodat list. Now, Nightingale Kodat insisted on prettying up the letter, to your point, because they couldn't bear to mail <laughs> what I gave them to mail, right? So it got prettied up, and it got abbreviated a little bit because they couldn't bear to send whatever it was, 16 pages, 18 pages. So I think it got cut to eight, um, which they weeped over. Um, um, but essentially, it was the same sales letter now to people who weren't there and didn't buy, just cold to a Nightingale Conant audience, and we sold a ton. It was their third most successful house direct mail campaign of the year. So when you get one, you want to saddle that baby up every way you can. Now, when my follow-up letter started to work, because I'm a generous guy, I went to Zig, I went to Tommy, I went to Brian, and I said, look at what I'm doing. You should do it too. <laughs> it ain't rocket science. Just transcribe your speech and mail, right? And here's my numbers, right? The answer was, which is probably why I wasn't doing it in the first place, I just gave them 
my best dog and pony show, right? I mean, I suited up. I came out here. I entertained them. I performed. I gave them my best pitch, and they didn't buy. They ain't going to buy now, right? They're too dumb to buy. <laughs> and I got to buy. It's over, I would say. But here are the facts. This is not a theory. I got facts. I got data, and I got money. You should do it, too. And really what we should be doing is we should be sending a letter to all the Zig buyers from Zig who didn't buy Tommy stuff, saying, I really appreciate you buying my stuff, and you made a great decision, but then you made a bad decision because you didn't get Tommy stuff. And we should have a letter from Tommy selling Zig, right? This yep. is what we should do, right? And everybody looked at me like a tree full owls, you know. <laughs> and my point being, don't let this happen to you. Don't let this happen to your business. Because um, often, even in successful companies, they're, they're leaving as much money on the table as they're getting. And they have something that works that they just don't use to scoop up more of the money. So, Dan, we're going to leave it at that because we're going to go to break. And uh, we'll be back with uh, three sessions uh, after lunch. And thank you for the morning. Thank you all. You've been listening to one of our gold members-only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a Diamond member and get access to the Diamond members-only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.